Friends, thank you for all your prayers and support over the last couple of weeks. My wife Mel and I and our family have really appreciated the way that you have been supporting us as we've started at OEC. So thank you um, for the last couple of weeks. In the process of moving to a new church on staff, um, I don't know if you know this, but you often get two pictures of the church that you're going to. So the first picture comes from the selection committee. They say things like, we love the Bible, we love to pray, we love our staff, and we want to grow as a church. We're an independent church, so we've got just the right number of Prezies, Baptists, and Anglicans. You know, we don't have too many of those. That's the first picture. The second picture comes from former members or other people at church. So, Hypothetically, this is hypothetically, they say things like, um, the same family has been on the eldership board for over 50 years and John Smith is the guy who really runs the church. Uh, the kids' church leaders have taken out a restraining order against some of the seven-year-olds at kids' church. Our senior minister, well, the last one, he disappeared under mysterious circumstances. We fear he may be buried under the new building. Um, and if Suellen ever asks you to do something, you just do it. That, <laughs> hypothetically, of course... Love you so well. Um, two versions or two pictures of the same church. I guess the question is, which one do you believe? The reason why I ask this tonight is because as we read the Bible together, we had two pictures of the same church. So the first picture is in verse 2. Have a look at it. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with every with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. That's the first picture. The second picture is in verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Uh, If we were to go, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly and mere infants in Christ. If we were to keep going to chapter 11, verse 17, we would see that Paul says, when you come together, your gatherings do more harm than good. It's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? Two pictures, two very different pictures of the same church. So which one are we meant to believe? The answer is both. Both exist at the same time because of the gospel. But if both pictures are true, then how does the gospel, and in particular how does the cross of Christ, help them to be united, help the people in the church to be united? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's jump into it. We're starting tonight our first uh, the first talk in the series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you're familiar with the city on Corinth, you would know that it was a major trade city in the Roman Empire. There should be a map that comes up beside me. It had temples to Apollos and Aphrodite and Athena, so it prided itself on spirituality. It was like the Amsterdam of the Roman Empire. If, the, if there was a sexual practice that you wanted, you could pay for it with money. It prided itself on sexuality. And the celebrities of the day were travelling philosophers, these great orators um, with great rhetoric. It prided itself on wisdom and power. 
And it's this very diverse city. As a trade city, it would have many different people in it. It was like this boiling pot of culture. Uh, and this city was, sorry, this diversity was reflected in the church. But more specifically, for them like us, people brought their cultural assumptions to church with them. These worldly views on spirituality, sexuality, wisdom and power had crept into the church and the church was being torn apart from the inside. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and in chapters 1 to 4, he applies the gospel to the problem of division in the church. As I said before, Paul gives us two pictures of the church. So let's have a look at the first picture. Have a look at the church of God. Have another look at verse 1 with me. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul uses the theme of calling to speak about identity. Did you notice that in verse 1? Paul says he is called to be an apostle. Verse 2, they are called to be God's holy people. Verse 9, God has called them into fellowship. So first, their identity is the church of God. Now the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is a gathering of people. And what identifies them is not their nationality, it's not their stage of life, it's not whether they are blue-collar or white-collar. What defines them is that they belong to God because they have been forgiven of their sin through Jesus Christ. They've been set apart and reserved for God. So they aren't to serve any other master or have any other purpose. The word calling here is not an invitation. You know, you might be invited to study at a prestigious university, invited to play A-grade football, or invited to um, have a promotion at work. But Paul is not talking about an invitation. This is a summons. God has summoned them. They have been summoned to his son to believe and trust in him, and they have been summoned by God to live holy and upright lives set apart from everyone else around them. So they no longer to believe, so they, they no longer belong to the world, they belong to God. They don't think like the world, they seek the wisdom of God. They don't live according to the world, they live according to what God says in his word. I mean, if someone was to ask you, what is the church? What is OEC? I mean, it would be weird for you to say, OEC, that's a holy church. <laughs> You've got tickets on yourself, right? But according to the Bible, we see that, no, this is the identity of the church. And this is us. We are the church of God here in Orange. We are sanctified by Jesus. We are called, summoned by God to be holy because that's our identity. And what stands out here, no, no, what's shocking is how Paul can be so positive. Did you notice that? Paul is so positive with all their failings. He, In fact, he positively reinforces the things that they've gotten wrong. Have a look at verse 4 with me. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. 
For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm honest, this language shocks me. Does it shock you? I mean, as a parent, I'm always told I need to positively reinforce the good behaviour and punish, discipline, well, at least talk to them about the bad behaviour. But Paul is reinforcing the bad behaviour. I mean, maybe Paul is joking. Maybe he's being ironic. Maybe he's doing that HR thing where you focus on the positives, eliminate the negatives. Maybe he's doing a compliment sandwich, you know, positive, negative, and a positive. Well, he's not doing any of those. Paul is taking the things that they believe, the things that they believe have earned themselves impressiveness, and he reminds them how they have received them. Verse 4, by the grace of God in Jesus. You see, once they worshipped false gods at the temples down the road, but now God in Jesus has enriched their speech and knowledge about God. Once they had no spiritual gifts, they had no idea about them, but in Jesus they don't lack any spiritual gift. And once they had no hope, they had an uncertain future. But now they have the promised hope of the return of Jesus and they have the assurance that in Jesus, when he returns, they will be found blameless on that day, holy and forgiven, part of God's people. Paul summarises this whole thing in verse 9. Have a look, it's beautiful. God is faithful, who has called you into his fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the faithfulness of God, whenever we read the faithfulness of God in the Bible, it should cultivate in us confidence in God. So Paul summarises this section by telling us that in spite of all their flaws and all their failings, he has confidence of who they are in Jesus Christ. He's confident of their identity because of how God has worked in them. So this is the first picture. Paul makes it abundantly clear that God has been at work in their life through the gospel. That's because a deeper understanding of the gospel helps us to see what the church is truly like. Uh, You see, we are taught in this world to be critical. Uh, We're taught at university to be critical. It's not a bad thing. We're taught by our Australian culture to be cynical. Maybe that is a bad thing. Um, And in our world, we're told to point out the problems in things. And so if we take that cultural assumption into church and look at church from that perspective, we will only focus on the bad things about church, the way that church hasn't lived up to our expectation, all the things that the staff team aren't doing. But this reminds us that actually God is at work. We'll never have a perfect church this side of heaven, but it reminds us that God is still at work in his people here. You see, we aren't a Christian because we've earned it through religious duty or our own good works. 
We don't put our trust in the things that we have done, but we put our trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The world says you're impressive because of your intellect, your job, your the money you make or where you live. But the most impressive thing about you is how God has worked in your life. Now, I don't know how you came to church tonight. Maybe you're going great and you're bouncing on cloud nine. The year has started well for you and you're confident of your trust in Jesus. Well, maybe at the start of the year, things haven't gone to plan and you hit a couple of bumps in your relationship with God. Maybe you're struggling and at the moment when we read words like holy people, you think, that can't be written about me. Or maybe you're here tonight because you've only just made it through the door, struggling to hold on to Jesus. Where do we find our confidence? Where do we find our hope? Verse 9, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The beauty of the gospel is, even when we don't feel like we're holy, that because of Jesus, we have been counted as holy and are called to live holy lives. This is the beauty of the gospel. Um, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, can I be so bold as to suggest that you are here because God is summoning him, summoning you to himself? And you're here tonight because God is at work in your life. If you want to know more about Jesus, I and anyone else here would love to tell you about how you can put your trust in Jesus. Okay, so first picture. Sorry, sidetrack. Uh, first picture. It's a very glorious picture. Let's have a look at the second picture that we see of this church. Have a look at verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. In the second picture, we see that the church in Corinth have, well, they've fallen pretty far. There's infighting, there's division. They're not united. The thing that God has brought together, his people in Jesus Christ, well, they're split and division. And there's not a bunch of different problems going in here. What I want you to think about tonight as you read the second half of chapter 1 is Shrek. You know Shrek? Donkey from Shrek? Onions got layers? Yeah? Well, his argument here has a bunch of layers and he takes them through it. So he first he starts at the top and he says the problem is with factions in the church. Verse 12, he says a bunch of people are saying that they're on different teams. Now, the original language here is not I follow Paul, it's actually the word of. It's a word of possession. Quite literally it reads, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. So imagine this, some people, you know, some people say, Paul is my guy at church, yeah, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he planted the church. He's the OG. He's the original. I'm in with Paul. I'm on Paul's team. And people say, no, 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 no. Have you heard Apollos preach? Mate, he is so good. He is so eloquent with his words. His rhetoric is amazing. He's a powerful preacher. I'm on team Apollos. Others say, well, look, they don't make apostles like they used to. 
So I'm with the real OG, that's Peter, uh, which is Cephas here. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. So he's just talking about the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter was with Jesus for three years. He's the real deal. I'm on team Peter. Or even Jesus, which I think is Paul being tongue-in-cheek, showing us how ridiculous these factions are. Because if some follow Paul and some follow Apollos and some follow Cephas, then who follows Jesus? Can you see the problem? It's not with the leaders, which is why I really like 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, In other letters, Paul will write about uh, false teachers and leaders gone wrong and false doctrine, but here it's people in the congregation assigning themselves or self-appointing leaders to head up their factions. The church that God has united in his son is divided The next layer has to do with baptism. uh, We're not going to read verses 13 to 16, but just quickly. It's not that Paul is against baptism here, but it seems that people are aligning themselves by their leaders according to who baptised them. So baptism is a sign of our allegiance with Christ, and here they're using it as an assign of an allegiance to a human leader that they belong to. But the core of the issue is verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The real reason people are divided, the real reason people have formed factions, is because they have misunderstood true wisdom. You see, the celebrities of Corinth, like I said before, were the travelling philosophers, which sounds funny today, right? I mean, my mate did a philosophy degree, and now he owns a coffee shop. There's not much money in philosophy today. But back then, philosophers, if you were good at arguing and had good rhetoric, you could make a lot of money. You could get pretty famous. You could be very impressive, Back then, philosophers, uh, they would roll into town and then they would publicly proclaim where they've been. You know, I've studied at this university. I've argued against these people. Uh, These philosophers endorse me. And then they would quite literally meet at a public arena and debate with other philosophers. So think UFC, but with philosophy. Yeah, don't, don't, two don't go together, but bear with me. Okay, and so, um, they would enter these public debates and they will show how great their rhetoric is, how impressive their arguments are, how wise they are. Um, philosophy in the first century of Corinth was loud and proud. And here's my point. The power of a philosopher was seen in their wisdom and their words. The power of a philosopher was seen in their wisdom of words. And so the believers in Corinth, they lived in this world and they took this cultural assumption with them when they came to church. And so when they thought about who should be their leader, who is the more impressive speaker, who has more power, well, surely it's the person with the best words, the best arguments, They believe that the power of God is seen in human wisdom and impressive preachers. That's really at the core of this issue. And we kind of know what that's like because we love to hear from experts, don't we? We love to hear from professionals. When something happens in the news, who do the newspapers call up? Well, they call up the experts who know everything about it. So think about this. Um, What happens when 
that person that you've been praying for for a really long time, you bring them to church for the first time and you want them to hear the best sermon so they can put their trust in Jesus. Well, I mean, I think it's human nature. We want them to hear the best preacher. But don't be fooled into thinking that the power of God rests in the impressiveness of a preacher. As we've already seen in verses 1 to 9, the power of God at work in people's lives is through the gospel and in Jesus Christ. The power of God is seen when the gospel, and in particular the cross of Christ, is faithfully preached. It's not in the impressiveness of any preacher. So this is the second picture that we have of the church. I guess uh, the big question is, which one do we believe? Uh, The church of God who is sanctified and called to be holy or this divided and worldly church that can't get anything right? Well, like I said before, both. We believe both because both exist at the same time because of the gospel. Remember, a deep understanding of the gospel gives us a clearer picture of what the church is truly like. About 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to go to an exhibition by two artists, Tim Webster and Sue Noble. They are extraordinary artists. What they specialise in is garbage. Yeah. So you go into a room, there should be a slide that comes up, and in the middle of the room is a pile of garbage. And it's pretty disgusting. I mean, if you can see the seagulls at the front, they're actually um, stuffed seagulls um, that were alive at one stage. It's got a bit of an odour, looks pretty messy. But then they shine a light on it, go to the next slide, and you see an extraordinary work of art. Friends, this is what a deep understanding of the gospel looks uh, does to our view of the church and God's people. From one perspective, we see in the church, it's a mess of sinful people who look like they're all trying to do their own thing. But when we shine the light of the gospel on it, you see it's not a mess at all. That the church is sinners saved by grace, sanctified in Christ Jesus and trying their best, to live out a holy life. Uh, You see God at work in people's lives, in the people around you. But it does leave a question. I mean, the problem in Corinth, yes, it's worldly, yes, they're bringing other ideas into the church, but it's also a a divided church. So I've got a question for you, and I'm going to give you a minute to chat to the person next to you. Uh, Here's the question. How does a church like this become united? How does a divided church become united again? I'll give you a minute. So turn to the person next to you and ask them.
Okay, please keep those conversations going um, after church. Uh, tonight I won't take answers, but I'm interested to hear what you said. Chat to me after the church. Um, if you looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 again, you'll notice that Paul doesn't actually say. Yeah? Like, Paul doesn't give us, here are five steps to be united as a church. So what do we do? How does a church that is so terribly divided become united? Well, the truth is, is we need God to help us. This church needs God to help them. And he does it, or he can do it, through his son Jesus and the gospel. Have a look at verse 17 with me. Again, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, in the gospel, and in particular in the cross of Christ, we learn that we are all equally sinful and unworthy to stand before God. We see the perfect sacrifice of, cross, of Christ, whose blood was shed for our sin. And through repentance and faith, we are brought into a relationship with God by his grace. Now, ultimately, the cross of Christ is the only thing that can save that's what he means when he talks about the cross being emptied of its power. Um, humans can't, human leaders can't save you. Baptism won't save you. Eloquent words and human wisdom have no power to convert people. It's only through the faithful preaching of the gospel, the cross of Christ. So Paul's doing two things here. First, he's setting up a pattern of faithful ministry. Uh, now, we're going to have a look at this more next week. So I'm kind of going to park that idea to next week, and we can look at it more. Because the second thing he's doing is he's actually giving us an antidote to a divided church. Because a deeper understanding of the gospel helps us to see the church for what it truly is and brings unity to a church. And I think this is how it applies to us today. Uh, you see, this is not written firstly to us. No, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church in the Roman Empire. So Paul is not saying that we are a divided church. Paul is not saying that OEC needs to have one congregation. Uh, he's not saying that we only need one church in Orange. Sometimes, sometimes there are very good reasons to have separate churches, separate congregations, even denominations. But this is written to a local church that is deeply divided. So how does the gospel help us, help to bring unity? Um, okay, let's do two things really quickly. Firstly, it challenges our personal um, preferences. Like I've said before, we are taught to be critical, sinful, and to poke the to find the problems in things. And when we bring our cultural assumptions and our preferences to church, it's very easy for us to emphasise our own preferences um, above and beyond other people's. Or even, which is terrible, to emphasise our own preferences above the preaching of the gospel. Um, I used to go to church with a guy called Alex. Alex was a beautiful man. He was half my height three times my age, and he had this big white Santa Claus beard. He was a beautiful man. Uh, 
He'd been at church for 35 years before I was at church. So he kind of knew the place, yeah. Um, when I was at church with Alex, our church went through this season of transition. Lots of things were changing. So the first thing that changed was the orientation of the building. We kind of flipped the building so when newcomers came, they felt comfortable to kind of sneak in the back and sit down and hear the sermon. The other thing we changed was the music. We stopped playing the lovely, beautiful organ and we moved to contemporary music and um, guitar and piano and bass. Uh, And we also changed the pews. That is, these beautiful, big, wooden pews. We got rid of them so we could have these kinds of individual seats so that we could do evangelistic events like the Mark drama and other kind of stuff. And every time we changed something... Alex was terrified that we were changing the gospel. Uh, Over time, it really, really concerned him. He was really worried for the state of our church. Um, That is, until he saw people, new people, coming to church, and because some of the little changes that we made, they were hearing the gospel really clearly and coming to faith in Jesus. That is, uh, it's not music or pews or the orientation of church that makes someone turn to Christ. We've already seen the power is in the preaching of the cross. Um, But he did see that some of these preferences that he had were less important. He said to me, Chris, it's really hard. I've been at church for 35 years and you've changed all this stuff in a couple of years. It's really hard but I can see that people are coming to faith in Jesus. So it's hard, but for the sake of the gospel, keep doing it. I learned a really good lesson from Alex. That is, our personal preferences can't come beyond and before a good gospel ministry and having others hear about the gospel. Um, So that's the first way Uh, it challenges our preferences as we come to church. The second thing, uh, it stops us from exalting human leaders and following them above Jesus. I mean, have you met Paul Owens? I mean, that guy is an ex-cop, right? So he is straight down the line. Like, he knows the truth of the Bible and he will tell it as it is. I'm on team Owie. Or have you met Greg Blanche? I mean... That guy just loves people. Like, not saying that, oh, he doesn't love people, but Greg, he really loves people, yeah? Like if you grab coffee with him and read the Bible, he loves you and you read the Bible and it's great. I'm on team Greg. Or this new guy, Chris, you know, this hipster from Sydney, right? Complains about coffee, talks about road cycling. I don't know. Can we really trust him? Like I could go on, but you get my point. Um, The gospel brings unity to us because it reminds us that we don't belong to any particular leader and we don't um, champion one congregation. That is, we follow Jesus Christ and we belong to him. And so it it pushes us to follow Jesus faithfully and also... uh, uphold the preaching of the gospel no matter whoever's doing it. I mean, this. uh, on a personal note, I found this pretty challenging this week. As I thought through um, what kind of I would like my ministry to look like in the next 10 years, this was a real challenge. 
do I want disciples of Chris Holding? Well, the answer is no, and you're probably glad about that. But I do want disciples of Jesus Christ. So what should we do for the next 10 years at 6.30? We need to be centred on the gospel. We need to have the cross of Christ faithfully preached time and time again so we may be remembered of who we are in Jesus Christ. So we may be remembered to the holy living that he has summoned us to and so that we may pursue unity with brothers and sisters that we are different from. Not for our own glory or to build a bigger kingdom, but for God's glory alone. So let me pray that that would happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, thank you um, for your word and what we've read tonight. We particularly thank you for how you are at work, even today, in your gospel and calling people to yourself. And so thank you for the way that you've been at work in our lives. Help us to have confidence in who we are in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see what your church is truly like, a holy church that is called to live out its holiness, a united church that must pursue unity. And so help us to do that through your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.